Can we just say thank you to our music team and our choir one more time? So good. So, 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 so good. I thank you, Jessica, for sharing your story. My, you know, there was so many things that moved me in that story, but I told the, the service last night, I said, you know, my biggest takeaway after watching that like 20 times, never underestimate the power of a praying mother, you know? Like she's, God said, call your mom. So, hey, if you're here and you're a parent and you're like, what are my kids doing with their life? Just hang on, hang tight. You never know what God is, uh, is up to. So, um, man, thank you for being here today. I know we've said that a couple of times, but uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Easter is, is such a big deal because uh, today, you know, with time zones, it kind of spreads out over, you know, 12, 24 hours, but, but millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians are gathering together wherever it is that they gather and they are celebrating. We are celebrating that Jesus Christ is alive. And for us who have kind of, you know, grown up maybe around religion in some way, we kind of take this for granted that there would be a person, a man who would resurrect and in that way prove that, that he was God. Because there have been a lot of people who have come along over the years and said they were God. There have been a lot of people who have come along and claimed to be something otherworldly. But Jesus showed up and he proved it because he volunteered to die so that you and I would not have to. He paid the penalty for our sin, not just the things we did once, twice, 10 times, but who we are as people, this, this natural state that we are in of dysfunction and self-sabotage and sin and pride and greed and shame and all of those things, Jesus showed up. He volunteered to die, to take all of that on himself, which would have been a, an amazing gesture in itself. But then three days later, he just kind of, did what God does and what only God could do. And he resurrected and, and proved in that moment and in that act that he's not like anybody else who's ever claimed to be anything. He is all on his own. He is God and uh, he's alive. And so thank you for being here today that we, we get to celebrate that. Um, and that's a big deal. I'm gonna read uh, the scripture that we're using today for our sermon out of Luke. But if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to stand with me um, if you're a guest with us, this is just something we kind of do when we read the Bible, just to, to honor the significance of the Bible. And so Luke chapter 13, I'm just going to read four verses to you, uh, starting with verse six and then to verse, uh, nine. Okay. This is what it says. It says, then Jesus told this story, a man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always, everybody say always. always, he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years. There hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Verse eight, the gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. And if we get figs next year, then fine. But if not, then you can cut it down. All right, you can be seated. Thank you so much. My, my mentor is a man named Eugene Peterson. Uh, he doesn't know that, that he's my mentor. Uh, we, we never met, and he died before I ever really got to know him. And so it's a little presumptuous for me to call him my mentor, but I do it anyway. 
because we spend almost every morning together. Um, me in my rocking chair, drinking my coffee. I'm 38, going on 68. I love every second of it. Uh, reading his old sermons that he used to preach to his congregation in the 70s and 80s outside of Baltimore. And for years, I prayed to God, years and years and years, I prayed to God, God, send me a mentor. I want a mentor, God. And I have an amazing father who is a, a man of God, a spiritual leader. And I have good friends who we walk together, we follow Jesus together. But I always wanted uh, like a wise old sage, if you know what I mean. I always wanted that mentor. Uh, and maybe I've seen too many movies. I don't know if this actually exists, but, what, but I, wanted, I always wanted that mentor that like we would go to, you know, breakfast together at the local diner. And we would sit there and I would talk the entire time and he would never say a word. And at the very end, he would say like one sentence that made all of life make sense. You know what I'm talking about? I wanted that guy. And I was growing more and more frustrated that it seemed like God was not answering my prayer uh, for this, this mentor. And I realized one morning after I'd spent many months reading and spending time with Eugene Peterson, that I had that. I had that in Eugene. Most of you, you may be familiar with that name. I don't know how many of you are because he actually translated the message translation of the, of the Bible. And so that, that was kind of his claim to fame. But he was a pastor for over 40 years uh, outside of, of Baltimore. And luckily, because of his translation of the message, all the other things that he wrote and sermons he preached were also categorized and published. And so I'm able almost every morning to to spend some time with Eugene. And I was reading the other day uh, where Eugene said that the hardest sermon of the year for him to preach was the Easter sermon. That made me feel so much better because it is for me too. And I can't speak for all pastors, but, but, but it, is, uh, it is for me. This is my 16th Easter uh, preaching to you, uh, Hope City Church. And every year without fail, Every year without fail, coming up to Easter, I feel this enormous pressure. It's not because you put it on me in any way. I, I just want it to be great. I don't want it to be good. I want it to be great. It can't be okay. It's got to be, it's got to be awesome, you know? And I, I want it to be Easter worthy because we're talking Easter. We're talking resurrection. We're talking new life. We're talking salvation. We're talking, I mean, this is, I mean, if you can't preach the resurrection, what are you doing? You know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking to myself. I'm just like, come on, you know, this is, we're putting it up on a T for you here. Like, let's, let's go. And so, you know, two, three weeks out, uh, you know, I, I start getting a little edgy, you know, and I, and I just start getting, I feel it, you know, and then the week of, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I, I just, I, I feel this, this pressure because I want it to be, I want it to be great. And you know what this feels like. It's not something that you feel necessarily trying to put together an Easter sermon, but I was thinking this week about uh, how you may understand what I'm describing to you, the ways maybe that you feel this really intense pressure in your life. I thought of a few examples, maybe like um, the pressure you feel when you've invited someone over to your home for like a dinner, a nice dinner. You're going to host them for the evening. And you know, if that is, you know, if, if that's something that makes you feel pressure, you know, the house can't just be picked up. No, 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 no. No, no, we gotta clean it. We gotta clean it. Like, matter of, it's so bad at our house that when we start really yelling at the kids to really clean, they always ask one question: Who's coming over? <laughs> That's what we've done to our kids, right? And and so 
And so, you know, you don't just use the normal plates. You got to get out the other plates. You know what I'm talking about? And, and the cups and the, you know, you go find the box with the, the, the dish towel in it with the, you know, the, the, the nice stitching and all of those things. You know what I'm talking about? And, and you want it to be great. And you're finishing vacuuming right about the time they pull in because they're five minutes early. And, and so they're in the driveway and you're yelling and you're spraying something, you know, whatever it is you're spraying and you're yelling at kids and they knock on the door. And then it's like, hey. Oh my gosh. And we're hoping that, it, that we're hoping that we have, we, have, we have convinced them that this is what it's like all the time. <laughs> this is what it's like all the time. It smells like fresh fruit in the air. And it's always this clean and the kids are always, you know, whatever it is. And, and so, you, you know, you're worried about the dinner and, and then you go through the evening and, and they leave. And you realize in that moment, if there's any self-reflection, you realize in that moment, you didn't really enjoy the evening. It's not that you hated the evening, but you realize that you felt so much pressure for it to be great and to be awesome and clean and smell like fruit that, you, you, it, that, that, that like they left and, and you didn't actually get to be with them. You weren't present with them because you were making sure it was awesome for them. You know what I mean? Now, just so you know, I don't feel any of that pressure when you're coming over to my house. My wife does. I don't. I don't feel any pressure that it's not my thing, right? Maybe, that, maybe you're like, yeah, that's not my thing too. But, I, but I'll give you another example. Something that is my thing is like when you really care about your kid's athletics. I hate to admit it, but man, I really care. I just, I, I want it to be great. Let's don't be good. Why settle for good? We can be great. Why score two goals when we can score three goals? You know, like why, you know, Sadie said to me the other day after I was like coaching her up in the car about being aggressive and throwing an elbow here and there, she said, dad, like you're a pastor. You know, and I'm like, I know. We'll invite them to church after the game, you know, but I want you to have fun and winning is fun. And so let's maximize the fun in the winning, you know? And you, some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you know, you're, you're coaching them up and you're psyching them up and, and, and the night before you get everything ready and the, you, know, you get to the game early and you know, you're just pep talking them to death and, 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 and the game starts and you're caught up in it and the game's over and you get in the car. And if there's this moment of self-reflection, you realize that you did not get to enjoy the game. You didn't get to enjoy the game. It's not that you hated the game, but you didn't get to enjoy the game because you were mad at the refs because it's always the refs, always the refs. You're mad at the other coach. You're mad at your coach. You're frustrated with your kids because there was three or four opportunities that were missed right there. <laughs> and, and you get in the car and you don't want to be that parent, but you get in the car and you're, wow, you did so good. I'm so proud of you. But you know, in the second quarter, you missed that, missed that pass. You, you could have been more aggressive, put your foot on, foot on that. You could have, you could have, you could have, you didn't get to enjoy, enjoy the game because, because you, did, you felt such, such pressure to be, be just right and, and just perfect. And if you were to spend more time giving examples, we would all, all be able to articulate a lot of ways that we're just, we're just not present. And we're not, not able to enjoy moments in our life that should be very enjoyable. Because we feel this massive 
massive pressure. I feel, feel that as a sister. You feel, you feel that as a mom or a dad or a business owner or, you know, any number of different ways. Why is that? Why do we do that? You know, for me, for me on Easter, I would love to say, because I want it to be great God, and I do, I guess, but I also know that that would be great, great for God. I know that it's going to be a big day and I want it to be significant for me or when people are coming over to your house or our kids' sports or buying a house or whatever it is. Like, why do we do that? At, at, at a basic level, the reason we do that, whether you realize it or not subconsciously, at a basic level, the reason you do that, the reason we all feel that in some way or another is because we want to cover up our insecurity. We want to cover up our insecurity. That every single one of us in the room feels inadequate in some way or a lot of ways. We feel inadequate. We know there's something wrong. We know there's a way that we could be better. And we want to be great moms and great dads and successful and attractive and respected and wealthy and responsible. And we are very aware of every way that we are not those things. We want to be great at something. We, we, want, we want someone to say our name and then follow it up with some type of description that's significant. Oh, you know, Jason, he's the best preacher I've ever heard. Oh, 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 you know, Andrea, she's the best singer. Oh, you know, Katie, she's the best leader. Oh, you know, they live over in, oh, their kid is so, there's some description that we want someone to say about us that makes us look as good as we possibly can, and in some way would help us to not have to face the parts of ourselves we don't like, the insecurity and the scarcity that we don't like. And this is true for everyone, by the way, even those of you who would say, not me, because I don't care what anybody thinks. What you say when you say that is that what makes you special and what your value is and what your contribution is, is that you are so independent that other people's opinions mean nothing to you. And that's what makes you awesome, your independence. You can't get away from it. Because of sin, Adam and Eve and the garden, in the bloodstream and the DNA of human beings is this lack and this scarcity and this insecurity that convinces us we're not enough. We're not doing enough. We should be more. We should do more. And especially kind of in this American Western way, we're addicted to self-improvement, techniques, work a little harder, crack the code, tighten up the mistakes, eliminate the habits. And we get little hits along the way. We get these little, you know, reprieves. And, and there are these moments when we just think, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm almost, I'm almost there. But then it never lasts long enough. And so we keep fantasizing about this idea of there. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. We say, if I could just get there, and if I would get there, then I would have peace and I would be content and I wouldn't strive anymore if I could get there. But if you've lived long enough, you know that when you get there, there is just here once you get there. Think about that for a second. You're here and you want to get there, but when you get there, you're, you're here. And you look at there, but then when you get there, you're here because here is just there once you get there, right? Like you're, you're, you're never there. You're never there. And we don't, we don't say it out loud and we may not even think of it this way. Maybe you've never even put it in these terms, but we bring that idea into our spirituality and we believe that that's what God expects of us. 
If we're disappointed in ourselves, God's disappointed in us. If our boss is disappointed in us, then God's disappointed in us. If our kids are disappointed in us, then God's disappointed. If our retirement account's not high enough, God's pretty bummed about that. And if our, you know, home value or our credit score or our savings account or our title, or we haven't changed our oil in 4,719 miles, and the mechanic looks at us like, "Mm," you're thinking God's looking at us like, be better with the oil. We just have all of these things that we think that like God feels the same as everyone else in my life who's, who's making me feel, and myself, who's making me feel this way. It's that gnawing feeling of insecurity and drive to prove our worth that keeps us from really experiencing God's presence, from keep us, that keeps us from being with God. The same way we can't enjoy the company at dinner, the same way that I don't maybe enjoy the resurrection the way that you do, or the same way that we can't enjoy the game. We cannot enjoy the presence of God or a relationship with God or be with God because of this pressure that we feel to be better, to do better. Even when we try to be with God, we're like, I'm gonna be great at it. I'm gonna be great at devotions. I'm gonna get my Bible and I'm gonna get my reading plan and my podcast, I'm gonna read it through in a year and I'm not gonna miss a day and I'll show you God, right? I've been so challenged by this lately for me personally, my own life about just being with God like spending time with Jesus. Because I say I have a relationship with Jesus and I definitely spend a lot of time doing things for Jesus, but I've been really challenged personally for me lately. Is like, if my Bible and my podcast player and all my books got stolen, how would I spend time with Jesus? Because Christians didn't have Bibles for 1500 years. So like personal copies of the Bible. So like if I didn't have information to digest or to read or to process or to learn? Like, how would I be with Jesus? I've been so challenged by this really since um, the sabbatical last summer, but then especially this year, I decided I wanted to try to do something a little bit different for me. And that um, in order to try to experience more time with Jesus, presence and grace of God with Jesus, that I was going to begin every day with 10 minutes of silence and stillness. This is what I set out to do. This is not an inherently Christian thing, even though they are ancient Christian disciplines. A lot of different philosophies and frameworks, you know, use the idea of silence and stillness, but it is a very Christian thing as well. And so I decided I'm going to spend 10 minutes at the beginning of every day in in silence and stillness. And so the kids get on the bus and, uh, and, and I go get more coffee. Uh, and that's another sermon about dependencies, but I go get more coffee and I go back to my chair that I love so much. And I sit there and I tell Alexa, start a 10 minute timer, just 10 minutes, 10 minutes, silence and stillness. Just going to be with Jesus. And it takes about 10 seconds for me to think about every other thing in my life, except being with Jesus. I think about if the kids took everything to school and I think about all the things I need to get done and I think about the fact that I think I hear a bird chirping in the laundry room (laughs) and I think about what kind of old man I wanna be and I think about how much gas is in my car and I think about the last time I got a haircut and I think about if the laundry, like what shirt am I gonna wear today and I think and I think and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking. 
And I realize I haven't spent any time with Jesus. And so a lot of mornings I'll stop the timer and I'll say to God, God, my bad on that one. I, I messed that up. Let's start over. And I'll start the timer over. And it may go a little bit better, but it doesn't go much better because I'm learning that I am really bad at just being with Jesus. For Jesus, I'm locked and loaded. With Jesus, I struggle. And you know, the hardest part's not the silence. I thought it would be the silence. The hardest part's not the silence. The hardest part is the stillness. And I never knew this about myself. And maybe, I don't know if you know this about yourself or not, but I never knew this about myself. What happens in those 10 minutes is that for 10 minutes, I'm sitting still and I'm not able to do anything. And I never realized how much I needed to do something. I never realized how much I felt like that my worth was tied up in my production in what it is that I create and what it is that I do. And so for 10 minutes, I have to sit there in the chair and I don't get up and everything inside of me is screaming to get up and to do something. We're wasting valuable time. Write something, work on a sermon, create something, call somebody about a meeting, do something because you're doing nothing. I never realized how much I believed that I needed to do something for God. I needed to show God. I would put a spiritual word on it like stewardship. I want to be a good steward. And, and so I need to make sure that I'm doing stuff. And in these 10 minutes, I'm realizing that the way God feels about me has absolutely nothing to do with what I produce, my productivity or my efficiency. And maybe if it was at the end of the day and I was really tired and I would just sit in my chair and just be like, in just 10 minutes and nothing, that would be awesome. But this is the beginning of the day. I'm fresh, I'm ready to go. My mind is racing. I wanna do some things. And it takes those 10 minutes like as a crucible to just kind of remind me again every day that in 10 minutes, I'm gonna get up from this chair and I can go be amazing or I can be awful all day. I can be perfect or I can drop the ball. I can be really efficient or I can be terribly inefficient. And it will not change in any single way how God feels about me how God loves me, why God saved me. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean I don't get to go do those things. Doesn't mean I can't be ambitious. Doesn't mean I can't try to really go and, and, and make something that matters and counts and be good at what I do. Of course, that's fine. I don't have to. Because the way God feels about me has nothing to do with how I feel about myself, or how I convince everyone else to feel about me. And with all of that said, it brings us to our scripture today of Jesus telling this fictional story, this parable about a tree in a garden that's accomplishing nothing. It's not growing anything, which is a strange story to read for Easter, I must admit. I told you I feel pressure about the resurrection, so we just avoided it altogether. I'm just kidding, we'll get there in a second. But I... I it's a strange story for Easter, but I think it's really appropriate because we show up in this room today all feeling like we should be doing more, being more, impressing more. So Jesus tells this story, and it's a parable, so it's symbolic and everything means something. We're the landowner who is inspecting the garden. The Bible says that he checks again and again. Again and again, but he's always disappointed. And we know what that feels like. We're all neurotic in some sense. We're checking again and again and again and again and again, don't we? We check our social media again and again. We check our email again and again. We check the scale again and again and again. And if we're up 0.2 pounds, 
we're the worst human being that's ever lived, but if we're down 0.2 pounds, we're thinking about running in the mini marathon. We check our bank accounts again and again and again and again and again. And if we're at $1,001 in our savings account, we're like, we're rich. But if we're at $999, why are we so irresponsible? Again and again and again and again. And we're we're checking our Zillow home values and we're checking our credit score and and we're we're checking and checking it. We're checking the weather. We're checking gas prices. We're checking, you know, I've reached that age. It's just like weather and gas prices, weather and gas prices. That's what we're checking. We're just checking again and again and again and again and again. Always disappointed. Always disappointed. Should be a better dad. Should be a better husband. Should be better with my money. Should be better with my body. Should be better with my career. Should be better, more present more helpful, more efficient, better grades. Should have got done with college a little bit sooner. Checking in again and again and again and again and again and always disappointed. Just taking up space, taking up space. And every one of us has disappointing fig trees in our life. Jesus is not actually talking about trees. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about our souls. And all of us could take inventory and we could think of a person who is useless or some character trait that holds us back or some habit that's a problem. Nothing's growing, nothing's happening. It's taking up space. It's a constant disappointment. And our instinct is to get rid of them, cut them out. Our instinct is to get rid of it, cut it out, throw it out. We're tired of being disappointed. We get impatient. We wanna amputate our inefficiencies. And we are convinced that God feels the exact same way about us. So we get motivated. We're going to make a change. We're going to do it. And we can can find as many coaches and leaders and teachers who will agree with us and books and hacks to help us increase our ROI. There is a carrot-only juice diet that you can get on. And there is a 30-day money-back guarantee and there's a course and there's a class and you can do this. And if you will, then you won't feel that way about yourself anymore, but you do it and then you still feel that way about yourself. Always disappointed. You expect better, God expects better. Change schools, change spouses, change teams, change churches, change jobs. Change, cut it, dig it up, get rid of it, start fresh, blank canvas. And it's just at that moment when we decide that we need to blow it all up. Obviously, it's not working. It's just at that moment when Jesus steps in, the gardener, and says, wait, wait. Just give me a little more time. Just give me a little more time. I know you're frustrated with where your life is at. I know you're angry about what you're not and where you thought you would be. And you're looking at all of your circumstances and situations and you are sure that my plan is always up and to the right. My plan is always more efficient. My plan is always more powerful. My plan, but just wait, just give me a little more time. I'm not bothered by trees that don't grow for three years. Just give me a little more time. And I was reminded this week that spiritual growth, this is what it feels like. You want to follow Jesus? This is what it feels like. It feels like trees that don't grow. It feels like pressure. 
It shouldn't feel like pressure, but it does. It feels like I got to do more for God. And God keeps showing up in his grace and just says, just wait, just wait, just wait. Historian Eugene Rosenstock says the greatest temptation of our time is impatience. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You're 27. You haven't done something amazing with your life yet. Let's go. Spiritual growth doesn't work the way that the stock market does or the housing market does or whatever else. And I was reminded of just how slow and methodical and unpredictable spiritual growth is over the last few weeks as we've been packing up our house, getting ready to move and painting the house. And our oldest daughter, Sadie, who's 13, has lived in the house for 10 years. And so she moved in when she was three. And on the doorframe, you know how this works, parents, on the doorframe, there's these little marks. I counted about six marks over 10 years on her doorframe, showing every time she measured herself. Now we know, scientifically, we know that your children are growing every day. This is never more obvious than when you buy them new shoes and a month later they are up a whole size, right? They're growing every day, but you don't see that they're growing every day. But there are these few moments along the way where they come down the stairs or they turn the corner, you haven't seen them in a little while, and you're like, whoa, you have really grown. You have really shot up. And this is what spiritual growth feels like. Becoming the person God wants you to be takes time. But we don't want it to take time. We want to be really great really quickly. We're ready for God to fix our situation or fix us. We're tired of being disappointed. And the best thing to do would be to quit, start over, start fresh, cut, whatever it is. And the reason I think this is a beautiful story, an appropriate story for Easter Sunday is because just a few weeks later, after Jesus tells the disciples this story, just a few weeks later, the disciples are standing there on the ground and they're looking up and Jesus is hanging on a tree of disappointment. That's what he's doing. He's hanging there. He's dead. Three years, these guys followed Jesus around and they were sure we're putting in our time. This is like an unpaid internship, but we are going to cash in. We're going to be powerful. We're going to be the leaders. Have you seen these crowds? Their parents are probably saying, what are you doing with your life? And they're like, mom and dad, trust me, this guy's the real deal. I'm going to take the money that you set away in the college account. I'm going to use it over here for this guy because trust me, mom and dad, he's the real deal, mom and dad, trust me. And now they're looking and he's dead and I got to go home. Sorry, you were right, and the money's gone. They thought it was going to go a certain way. They had it mapped out, and now they're looking at Jesus hanging on a tree of disappointment. We know for a fact they start thinking among themselves, like, probably we should go back and fish. Let's just go be fishermen again. We know that. They were thinking that. We've wasted three years of our life. And we don't read this in the Bible story, but in that moment, it's almost as if standing there, look at Jesus, looking at Jesus hanging on a tree of disappointment. God is just saying to them, just wait. Just give me a little more time. It's not what you think it is. It's not gonna work out the way you think it is. Easter's a reminder to us that even what we define as failure is never really failure. 
And what we think is disappointment is not really disappointment. It's the perfect opportunity to be reminded that God knows what he's doing. It's a reminder that, that God is working even when it feels like nothing else is. And it's a reminder to just give him a little more time, a little more time. And so I don't know, maybe you're here and you feel like the person who was cut down. Maybe it wasn't your choice. Maybe someone sized you up, was always disappointed with you. And so they just cut, they just gave up. Maybe it was your parents always reminding you of mistakes, or maybe it was a spouse who walked out, or maybe it was a coach or a pastor who hurt you. But someone sized you up and decided you weren't worth it, and you didn't get any more time, and they cut you. I mean, that's hard. That's hard. Maybe, maybe you were not the one cut, though. Maybe you're the one walking around with the ax. Maybe you're just always unhappy and always discontent and feeling like things have got to get better quickly and faster and more and efficient and productivity and maturity and go and do and do, and this is what God wants. And, and you define being spiritually mature as being you know, successful and prosperous and healthy. And it's not that it's not, but it's not that it is either. And so I don't know where you fall in any of this, and I don't know how this sermon is landing with where you are, but if that's you, if you're the one who's been cut or you're the one who is just always feeling like you need to do the cutting, I have really good news for you today, that Jesus isn't disappointed in you. He's just not. Jesus isn't disappointed in you. He doesn't want to cut you down. He's not bothered by trees that don't grow fruit for three years. And one of the ways that we know this is that when Jesus rose from the dead, we know that on the day of his resurrection, at least five, five times, at least, he appeared to people. And over the next 40 days, at least 10 times he appeared to people. And who he appeared to really tells us something about who he is and his nature. And it's an interesting thought to really kind of consider, like if you rose from the dead and you were just gonna start appearing places, where would you go first? It's kind of a fun game. Maybe you'd go to your mom, you know, and you'd say, hey, mom, just want to let you know I'm fine. I'm not dead. It's okay. Maybe, maybe I'm not spiritual enough, but I would want to, my first stop would probably be the guys who killed me. I wouldn't even say nothing. I'd just be like, I wouldn't even say nothing, you know? Just, just let it be awkward, you know, just... I don't, I mean, you probably would do something. You'd probably go to church. I just, I would, I would probably go to, I just want to make a statement, you know? Um, but we don't have to guess. We know what Jesus did. The very first person that Jesus appeared to after he resurrected was Mary. If you know the story, you know who Mary is. Mary was, I mean, you talk about a disappointing tree. Jeez. You know, prostitute, not a high-end escort. Like, like the lowest, lowest level of sinner. If it's the same Mary and most people believe it is, she was, she was possessed by like seven demons. Demon-possessed prostitute. First person Jesus showed up to. Then he showed up to the disciples, but the Bible specifically says that when they, he showed up, Thomas wasn't there. So he came back which is crazy to think about. 
because he wanted to meet up with Thomas. If you know the story, you know who Thomas is. Thomas was the doubter. He gets a bad rap. It wasn't that he was like throwing away everything of his faith. He just wasn't going to take their word for it. He was a little more cynical and unsure. And he said, I'm not, I'm only going to believe if I can see it myself. And maybe that's you. You're here and you're like, I, I'm I, like, that's fine if y'all embrace it, but like, I'm just not sure. And you have all these doubts and and that Jesus showed up and it was so important for Jesus to talk to Thomas that he came back a second time. And then towards the end, we know that Jesus met with Peter. If you know the story, you know that Peter um, had like the biggest mess up of all mess ups. He denied Jesus Christ. After claiming that he would die for Christ, he was scared of a teenage girl asking him if he was a disciple. And he denied Christ. I began to think about that yesterday, that, that, that Jesus, after resurrecting, chose to show up to the biggest sinner, the biggest doubter, and the biggest failure. Trees of disappointment. And I would be willing to bet that Mary, a lot of times in her life, thought, what's the point? And Thomas maybe was beginning to think, let's just cut it down, get rid of it, forget these three years of my life. And I'm sure Peter, we know Peter was thinking, what good am I? And it's almost like in those moments, Jesus shows up and says, I told you to just give me a little more time. And so maybe you're here and you would say, I'm the biggest sinner. You have no idea, Jason. No idea. That's why I won't volunteer in kids. I'm not letting anybody run a background check. You have no idea. Maybe you're here and you say, I'm the biggest doubter. I just act like everybody else, like I'm feeling it, but I got, I just, I don't know. Maybe you're saying, I'm the biggest failure. Like I, I, I made some mistakes that I will never be able to not think about all the time. If that's you, biggest sinner, biggest doubter, biggest failure. Jesus loves you so much and is so not disappointed in you. He just wants to show up in your life and just be with you, to spend some time with you. You don't have to do anything for him. You don't have to do anything for God. We say it all the time around here. You don't have to do anything for God. But if you really ever believe that, you'll do anything for God. But until you believe it, you're not doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it to quiet those voices of insecurity and that pressure that you feel to have to be somebody, to prove something, to, to show something to God, to be worthy, to, to, to be somebody that he's not disappointed in. But the moment you ever truly believe every day, as much as you can, that you don't have to do anything for God, then and only then are the things that you do for God really for God. And you get to do them because you get to, not because you have to. So I'm gonna pray for us. The team's gonna come and, and lead us and opportunity to take communion. And as you're taking the communion today, here's what I want you to do. He said, do it in remembrance of me. And that's what we're gonna do. And we do that every week. But especially today, here, here's what I want you to remember. As you're taking that bread and you're dipping it in that juice, here's what I want you to remember. It's already done. He already did it. You don't have to do anything because he already did it. And as you eat that bread, I want you to ask Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit, help me to believe it's true that you already did enough, so I'm enough. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did not create some religious system that required me 
to meet the requirements of behavior, acceptability. God, I think most of my life, my biggest hang-up with Christianity just feels too easy. Feels like I got to do more. I got to earn something. I got I to gotta contribute something. And every day I have to be reminded I don't. And I'd be willing to bet, God, there's a lot of people who feel like that too. And so I pray for the people, God, who feel like the biggest sinners, the biggest doubters, the biggest failures. I pray, God, that we would be reminded today that you're not bothered by trees that don't grow. You just want to be with us. You just want to make an appearance in our life and remind us that you know what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.